Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode here at Network 5 Emergency Medicine Journal Club. The topic this month is paediatrics and we have three amazing papers lined up for you today. First of all, we'll talk about appendicitis and see if there are racial disparities in the rates of delayed diagnosis and complications. Then we'll talk about some of the ethical issues around the presence of family during resuscitation in paediatric cardiac arrest. And finally, we'll talk about mental health presentations in children with autism, spectrum disorder and ADHD. We're very lucky to be joined by senior emergency physicians Dr. Kerf Tan and Dr. Carl Pobray. Without further ado, let's introduce you to our panel. Hi everyone, this is Shreyas. I'm back for another month and really looking forward to talking about my favourite topic in medicine. Hi, I'm Riz. I'm one of the emergency trainees at Westmead and I am a long-time listener, first-time caller. Very excited to be here. My name is Yulis. I'm one of the emergency provisional trainees at Westmead. This is Kaf, one of the emergency consultants at the Open Hospital as well as Children's Hospital Westmead. Nice to be back for another episode. My name is Carl. I'm a pediatric emergency specialist and pediatrician at Westmead Children's ED. Really excited to be with you all and excited for the discussion ahead. Hi, it's Kit. I'm back for another month in my corner. Hi, it's Harry. I missed last month, but glad to be back for this episode. And I'm Simona. I'll be your host today. The first paper is titled Racial and Ethnic Disparities in the Delayed Diagnosis of Appendicitis Among Children. It was published in Academic Emergency Medicine in 2020 by Goyal et al. Yelis will present this paper for us. So this paper initially was accepted in 2020. This was in response to the authors going and doing a lot of literature reviews and having a look at appendicitis. So a bit of context about this study is the diagnosis of appendicitis is pretty critical because delays in the diagnosis of appendicitis is associated with risk of perforation and related complications, so peritonitis, sepsis. And so it's quite serious if we do have a delayed diagnosis, so increased complications. For this reason, the appendiceal perforation rates have been used as a measure of the quality of care that's delivered to patients with suspected appendicitis. So we're thinking about the rates of perforation, so being like 30% prior to operative management from a delayed diagnosis. And previous research in this area has identified some risk factors for missed or delayed diagnosis, including a young age, female gender, African-American race, non-English speaking background, and government insurance factors, mainly based in the US, as associated with higher rates of appendiceal perforation. Also within that same sort of spectrum, there have also been some racial and ethnic factors related to how less likely people are able to receive analgesia in that circumstance as well and analgesia in general with their presentations. So this is what the study was having a look at. The authors of the study identified that with a literature search, they were unaware of any larger studies that were looking at the association of race and ethnicity with the diagnosis or delayed diagnosis of appendiceal perforation. And so that's what they have set out to do. Their hypothesis was that there's racial and ethnic disparities in appendiceal perforation rates associated with a delayed diagnosis of appendicitis, as well as the diagnostic imaging that's initiated. This paper was having a look at retrospective cohort study using the information available on the PECAN registry, which is a research network that was available in the US that had a look at collaborative research, including seven sites. So it was four tertiary pediatric emergency departments as well as three satellite sites that did have pediatric emergency presentations. So this study was conducted over three years, and the criteria was based on the ICD coding for appendicitis. 
that was a delayed diagnosis. So this was defined as the patients who within seven days had an initial presentation with signs and symptoms of what would be associated with appendicitis and then had a subsequent admission for appendicitis or appendiceal perforation. So this study was conducted over three years and they've compiled all this data. So they've eventually ended up with a study cohort of 7,298 patients within the study who were under 18 years old with a diagnosis of appendicitis or appendiceal perforation. And they've had a look at the data from the PCAM registry and had a look at the data that was inputted from the registry about their racial or ethnic background. So they've divided this into the non-Hispanic black population, the non-Hispanic white population, Hispanic and other, as per the entries that were available on their electronic health records. This delayed diagnosis was had a look at by an inter-rater system where they've actually gone back and had a look at the initial symptoms of presentation compared to the actual diagnosis of appendicitis. So they've used a system called the System Disease Pair Analysis of Diagnostic Error or the SPADE system. And between the two iterators, they didn't actually find any disagreement between that diagnosis. So they had very strongly associated what they had originally come in with with the diagnosis of appendicitis so early on. Having a look at the details of the study, they excluded a lot of patients who had come in with unassociated things. So if it, were, if it was a finger laceration in the days previous, they wouldn't include it in the study. But things like nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain that were commonly associated with appendicitis was included. And they found with the 7,298 children, they were finding a lot of abdominal pain was leading to quite high rates of appendiceal perforation within the non-Hispanic black population. So some of the results were quite telling. They had a high rate of about 36.5% then as opposed to the non-Hispanic white children at 34.9%. The odds ratios were adjusted for age, gender, insurance type, site type, and provided care level, triage category, and highest pain score during the initial visit and site. And the non-Hispanic black children had higher rates of delayed diagnosis of appendicitis defined as, as having that prior ED visit for a related complaint preceding the diagnosis. In comparison to non-white Hispanics at 2%, non-Hispanic black children had higher rates of delayed diagnosis of appendicitis at 4.7% as opposed to the 2.0. And what they also found as a secondary part of the study is that non-Hispanic black children were less likely to undergo any definitive imaging, so CT, MRI or ultrasound, during the prior ED visits compared to non-Hispanic white children. Of the 206 children with a delayed diagnosis of appendicitis, 89 of them had some form of diagnostic imaging prior to their emergency visit. And in comparison to the non-Hispanic white children, non-Hispanic black children had lower rates of diagnostic imaging. So the non-Hispanic white children was 46.2% and the non-Hispanic black children had 28.2%. So overall, patients of colour had about 1.8 times a higher rate of delayed diagnosis, as well as an 85% chance of undergoing diagnostic imaging on their admission. These results suggest that when children present to the emergency department with these symptoms that may be consistent with appendicitis, they're generally managed differently based on their race and ethnicity. So this differential as well in this delay could lead to higher rates of appendiceal perforation amongst children of colour. 
Some of the actual limitations of this study, given it's a retrospective study, may rely on the misclassification of the cohort themselves. So the race and ethnicity data collection poses a big problem, especially with the identity and recording. So a lot of these places were relying on the patient's identification of a particular ethnic or racial group, as well as the recognition from staff of that as well. So if they didn't actually declare themselves as a particular racial ethnic minority, that might not have been recorded correctly. This is a very US-based study, so unfortunately for us in Australia, this creates a different subset of information. The results may not be generalizable to us here. The study itself identified that no interventions outside the EDs was included in the registry. So if they had previous presentation to one of those hospitals outside of that PECAN registered network, they wouldn't necessarily be able to access that data. So a lot of that data is lost and cannot be included in those study numbers. So there could be a larger population who've presented to a different facility or had different sorts of scanning, which are then excluded from this study and not reflective of the true numbers. Overall, the implications of this study is why these disparities exist between racial and ethnic groups and how we then develop practice policy to cover like an equitable distribution of healthcare to all patients, which is extremely important when you're thinking about multicultural diverse population, such as in our area of Western Sydney or within Australia or indeed the world as we are a global community now. Thank you so much for that amazing summary of the paper, Yelise. I thought it was an interesting read as well. Basically, the authors of this study concluded that non-Caucasian children were more likely to have a delayed diagnosis of appendicitis, they had a higher likelihood of appendiceal perforation, and that they were less likely to undergo any imaging or definitive imaging. And then in their discussion, they acknowledged that these differences are due to a multitude of factors such as access to health services, health literacy, and healthcare provider bias. Then they make a very broad statement and say that the findings from the study suggest that differential evaluation of the patients based on their race slash ethnicity may contribute to all of the negative outcomes that I just mentioned. Now, what are your thoughts on this paper, Kerf and Carl? This study obviously took place in the US and we work in Western Sydney where it's also very culturally diverse. How generalizable do you think the results are? And do you think we can draw such broad conclusions with such data? I thought it was a great study, just reading it. It's a strong study. I guess this limitations for us is, yeah, like, again, it's in the US. How much of the data can we extrapolate from that to apply to us? Not so sure. I think you can always sort of get big, broad sort of statements or conclusions from this study. I'm just putting on my international public health hat. I think a lot of to do with the delayed diagnosis or delayed presentations is multifactorial. And probably it has to do with the social determinants of health. I did a master's of international public health a few years ago, and I thought that was the big highlight of my learning. There's so many factors outside of the, our medical field that sort of impact on a child's health, uh, a family's health. I think health literacy is, is a major problem. Access to health care, I think much more of a big problem in, to, in the United States than us. We're quite lucky here to have our Medicare and public hospitals. So uh, maybe part of that disparity is the disparity between people who have access to healthcare, which I think is there's a bigger gap there in the States. But definitely here, if a family has low health literacy, has poor access, don't know when to seek help, then I agree that that probably will lead to a delayed presentation and more likelihood for appendiceal perforation. 
agreed the issues usually are quite multifactorial and agree with Carl as well the benefit of the Australian system is there's quite a lot of um, equal access in terms of once it comes to the hospital we actually provide quite a similar service despite your cultural background or your ling- uh, linguistic background the challenge however is usually a barrier of the communication and the literacy and actually I think this is where it uh, reminds us very strongly that we have to bear in mind the patient and family's cultural background when actually talking to them, whether it's a linguistic barrier as well. That's where we actually have to make a deliberate decision to actually slow down a little and actually do a thorough assessment with a linguistic help as well, as well as the not only the front part during the assessment of the child and the parent, but also towards the end where it's really crucial we actually do the right safety netting right education for the patient and the parents and the carers as well. We're quite lucky that access to imaging here, once you walk up to hospital with a similar condition, probably will be quite similar um, despite the races. But in terms of delayed diagnosis, again, the recognition of the unwell child may be actually on the lower side with those with poor health literacy, which is also something challenging to try to improve when the patient is actually not in hospital yet. They probably have a late presentation to the GP and then after that, a late presentation to the hospital as well. Going back to the paper, what's interesting to me is looking at, obviously, the population that's in there is actually quite clearly American and looking at Hispanic versus non-Hispanic. And then after that, in the non-Hispanic group, uh, splitting to the white and black patients, looking at the numbers for the perforation rate, it appears that actually for the Hispanic ones, obviously doesn't actually, interval actually crosses one, so it doesn't look like clinically that's uh, statistically significant there. But for the non-Hispanic blacks, again, it's just an edge across the one mark, meaning a 1.01 to 1.45. So personally, does it change my practice about whether there's any significant change in perforation? Maybe not. But what was obviously interesting was the data with the delayed presentations where you can see Again, with Hispanics, there's not really that much statistical significance, alteration of one mark. And then with the black patients, obviously, again, quite close to one, but up to even three times the odds ratio. So how does it change what I do? I commonly will remind the junior doctors and myself as well to just probably have to slow down a little bit when you're seeing someone with either poor literacy or poor health literacy or whether there's a language barrier and take the time. Sometimes you've got to double up the amount of time you have to spend and that's what you have to accept. I agree with Kerf, particularly in the last bit about this whole safety netting, particularly with non-English speaking or culturally diverse patients. Just giving that extra five minutes at the end, get an interpreter to get them to understand when to seek help, when to come back to an emergency department, I think is really, really important. I think this paper sort of gives evidence to me that, you know, these people are vulnerable people and are more risk of deterioration and or complications of disease in general. On a side note, I was wondering what your thoughts are on some of the diagnostic calculators for appendicitis, such as the Alvarado score or the pediatric appendicitis score. I was wondering if these would help to eliminate some of the provider bias that was discussed in the paper. I completely agree that with the surgeons that appendicitis is a clinical diagnosis. And sort of that pediatric appendicitis score or Alvarado score provides GMOs a standard sort of way to approach appendicitis in a more sort of objective way. So I like using it. I document it myself. And it's a good way to communicate with other teams like the surgeons what the PAS score is, what the Alvarado score is. It's very easy to interpret. So I like the use of it and I encourage the use of it within my practice and uh, the trainees. All of us actually use it, I think, at the Children's Hospital West Meet emergency. Mm. And I think also what's useful from an education perspective is actually knowing what to look out for in the patient clinically. 
because it's actually the actual checklist of what you're actually going to look for in a patient with that condition. Again, the downside obviously is once you go down that pathway, then you're quite focused on that one condition, whether you're actually using the scoring system appropriately or not, that's the main risk. Otherwise, if you keep an open mind, think about your differential diagnosis, it should be very safe. If anything, uh, the scores tend to be obviously a bit more sensitive so that we actually go down the right path to prevent missing and delayed diagnosis and perforations later as well. I must admit that I've never particularly found either of those tools useful. I'd say that not because I don't think that they have inherent validity, but more just because I find them both to be essentially a list of the signs and symptoms of appendicitis. And so it feels intuitive to me that people who have more signs and symptoms of appendicitis are more likely to have appendicitis. Having said that, I can see how, in a way, it would be useful for this particular problem, which is essentially allowing us to transcend that cognitive bias, particularly in junior staff or just any staff who are interacting early with this patient, whether it's at triage or whether it's in that initial medical interaction, you know, before there's the objective information, such as through blood tests or things like that, that can help us say, oh, actually, this child is sick. I think using this tool might help actually frame some potential cognitive bias. So instead of, oh, that child, you know, they're probably just being histrionic, just give them some Panadol. They might be a bit more inclined to say, oh, well, actually, the pediatric appendicitis score is six, so I should make sure I'm taking this child's pain seriously. I guess the only risk is then the potential for overtreatment. I can see where you're coming from, Shares. For example, you're a more senior clinician, so you've seen the presentations of appendicitis before. It's sort of ingrained in your clinical practice, and you probably know some of the nuances as well that goes outside of the pediatric appendicitis score. I think it's most useful for the juniors who are just starting off. Giving them that sort of standard approach is a good way. And over time, with clinical experiences, it will become sort of second nature to you where they'll sort of lie in your score yourself that you've, you've built up over the years. As seniors in ED, we need to model sort of good approaches. And I think that's a good starter. But I think uh, you sort of leave it behind after you're a more seasoned clinician. I think that's a really valid comment. And like all risk stratification tools, I think it does represent a valuable starting point. Even, you know, we extrapolate it to the discussions we had around chest pain last month. And it was a very similar thing. You know, I'll often start in the patients where I'm uncertain anyway, start with an EDAC score just to challenge my own cognitive frame. But then if I'm more worried than the EDAC score, then I'm going to ignore the EDAC score. And similarly, if I'm worried about the child, regardless of whether the pediatric appendicitis score is zero, I'm still going to be worried about that child. As Kerf also said earlier, as long as we don't get one track mind, you know, it's potentially useful. Specifically for these two scoring systems, we mentioned the Alvarado and the PES score as well. There's also the objective measures of blood tests as well, which also helps to increase the specificity of using the scoring system as well. But don't forget also these other, mostly all the other symptoms and signs in there. Also, it's actually a, not only very useful for appendicitis, but also a potential markers of just a child just being a bit too unwell to go home as well. So that's when it would be useful to actually say this patient actually, you know what, we're not sure whether it's actually appendicitis, but maybe they should just benefit from their surgical review and ultrasound as well. So being sensitive again and trying to bring it back with a bit of specificity with the lab values as well as our extra opinion and further imaging as well. Looking at our own backyard for a minute, data from the Australian Institute of Health and Wellbeing demonstrate a higher burden of disease in Australian Aboriginal children compared to non-Indigenous children. As emergency physicians, in what ways can we play a role in closing this gap? In that regard, I think Aboriginal patients, clearly, we have to do much more to try to improve their health outcomes. I think it's something that all of us need to share the burden together. One of it, which I highly recommend, and quite a lot of high-level discussions in multiple communities in Western Sydney local health districts, was talking about making use of our Aboriginal liaison officers, having that cultural bridge between patient unit or family unit as well. 
having a little bit more uh, understanding of what their culture is like. So again, multiple training sessions, multiple education sessions out there about trying to get us up to scratch about what their expectations usually are, what their uh, communication barriers or what their communication techniques we can use. And obviously on top of that, actually, is even sticking to just the basics. Sometimes you just forget about the basics, about the communication and education where really after giving them a spew, try to check their understanding of what's going on. Sometimes even get them to actually maybe tell you what the actual safety net and plan is for the patient as well. That's one um, about secondary and even tertiary health, but also what about primary health? Um, so I think that's where we play a part in primary health in terms of a little bit of health literacy for the patients here, but maybe getting a little bit more engaged with the community, whether if the primary care physicians and GPs out there as well to try to have a bit more surveillance and access for, for them in the community as well. Completely agree. It's a complex issue and the gap has multifactorial, a lot of social determinants of health, which makes the gap wide. As clinicians, we just, I think pediatric emergency clinicians or emergency clinicians, we just have to acknowledge that the gap is there, that it's complex, that we need to look out for these patients. Again, these are a vulnerable population prone to, to certain morbidity and illnesses. I like the idea of the Aboriginal liaison officer, because sometimes that can sort of when giving your treatment plan, it sticks better with them, particularly if you've created that connection. If you've got somebody from their culture on board advocating what you're advocating, it might stick more. I think that's a practical sort of approach to it if you have those services available. I think you guys both mentioned in the initial question that Smoda asked about sort of access to care in Australia, not quite having those same disparities in terms of access to care as in America. And that, I guess, is primarily to do with, I guess, insurance and the way our health system is set up. There is another factor in the way the Australian health system in particular is set up that I think does systematically discriminate against Aboriginal patients, and that's the deficits in coverage of regional health areas. As we know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities are very substantially less likely to be congregated in cities and urban areas and are much more disseminated across a very large landmass. And the issue is that I guess the way our health system has been designed is in a very European way. And so as a result of that, the expectations that we tend to place on some of these regional communities tend to be a bit culturally unfair. The other issue is that, you know, when those patients do present to those regional departments from a staff point of view and from an equipment point of view, those departments tend to be significantly lacking. And I think that plays a huge role in the gap between the outcomes for patients of those backgrounds, as well as just for all patients in regional areas compared to urban population. I think I completely agree with Shreyas where he wants the access to care. But I think the one that we sometimes, to be fair, I've, I've never worked in Northern Territory before, but I have quite a few colleagues that have worked there. And then the interesting other manifestation of the problem as well is how when we're trying to help sometimes just because of what they know uh, or their health literacy and so on, that they actually are refusing help as well. Again, it's a, a challenge where you're trying to help someone who doesn't actually understand what you're trying to do for them or even know that you're trying to help them, but they disagree with the approach that you go about as well because of the way their culture is and how they are brought up and so on. And that's a different challenge and a difficult one as well. Or the other one, you can pour in resources in there, but unfortunately, because of the multiple aspects and the multiple facets of engaging the Aboriginal community as well, that it comes to nothing or comes to disappointing results as well. Not saying that we shouldn't try anymore, but really 
we really have to have very strong champions out there that actually lead the way in actually understanding them and actually knowing how to apply it appropriately rather than trying to craft a, a way of improving the healthcare without actually engaging them at all. Kev, that's essentially the story of Australia's relationship with its Aboriginal people across multiple domains, across multiple government systems for generations now, isn't it? Is that we've thrown money at the problem without really attempting to have any effective understanding of how those patients want to be actually looked after. And so as a result, we're essentially putting more and more resources into giving Aboriginal population a Eurocentric health system, and then we wonder why it doesn't work. I think ultimately it goes down to the sort of co-design principles, and it's a structural thing. I don't think any individual clinician who works in those areas intends to go there and provide racist care. Ultimately, it's about how we redesign our health system over time in order to better facilitate care. I know that like certainly in the adult population, there's some initiatives in terms of sort of remote and mobile dialysis units and things like that, that sort of aim to better care for regional communities without creating that displacement. But it's going to require a lot more engagement and a lot more time to overcome, I guess, generational memory of and the mistrust that exists in the Aboriginal population when issues of the stolen generation were literally still alive in the memories of people who are alive today, it's going to be difficult to get them to trust that we're benevolent, but ultimately that's where we need to get. It's not just health responsibility, but it's all other areas of uh, institution around the country, whether it's the you know local governments, the police, the schools, everyone has to be involved. There's no easy fix it's just so many different stakeholders and, and it's an entrenched problem. So it'll take a long time and a lot of institutional sort of um, work to make any sort of changes in the future, I, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. I would like to see this research replicated in an Australian context. Actually, I think that would be a really interesting thing to observe. There is a paper from 2010 that looks at remoteness with Indigenous people and access, but Aside from that, there seems to be a positive literature out there, really. I completely agree. I think once we quantify the space better, then we'll be better equipped to do something about the problem. That was a very thought-provoking discussion. Thank you so much, everyone. Yelis, could you give our listeners a few take-home points? So I think it's all really important to think about how we can minimise ethnic and racial disparities and make sure that we are, in fact, conscious of them and that they are going on and that we don't incorporate them into our own practices. So the points about using objective tools, especially in earlier practice, especially when you're starting to figure things out on your own, you have that responsibility as a clinician early on. You don't have that experience. It's really important to think about that and incorporate that. It's also really important to be racially sensitive and ethnically sensitive to issues that envelop our communities at home as well as what goes on overseas if we ever do move overseas. And you need to experience that sort of exposure to what population groups are in the area and adapt and explain your practice in friendly terms as in use interpreters and use services like the Aboriginal Liaison Services. So I think they're all really relevant points there. So I think... um, belief system of making sure that people are equipped to have that knowledge and have that health literacy is really important in our practice and using that time to just have that primary and secondary health knowledge that's disseminated to to our vulnerable populations is really important. Thank you so much. So this month we are very lucky to have two interlude segments. The first one will be presented by Instagram celebrity Dr. Carl Pobray.
Hi guys, it's Carl, your friendly pediatric emergency specialist and pediatrician. I'm just going to give you 10 pediatric commandments that will help you in your pediatric training or if you see a child in ED as a clinician. So first, children are not little adults. Children come in all sizes and shapes. They are fundamentally different compared to adults because their physiology, anatomy and disease types uh, differ uh, with age. Children tend to deteriorate quite rapidly also. One of the great things about kids is that we see the spectrum from zero to 16 years of age. And the way you approach childs of different developmental age is part of the art of pediatrics. The way you approach an infant will be different to how you approach a toddler, which will be different to approach to a school child, which is different to how you would approach a teenager. So it is a patient-centered approach and you need to adjust that. The second is that a mother's concern is yours too. So children come with parents. They come part and parcel. And the parents, particularly the mother and father, know their child the best and are the best advocates for them. So utilize them, leverage that relationship between the child and the parent. If you get along with the mother, you find you'll get along better with the child. And if you get along with the child, you find you'll probably get along better with the parent. The third biopsychosocial. So the child is taken care of by their parents. The family is embedded within a larger family, which is embedded in a community. To approach the child in pediatrics or pediatric emergency medicine, you need to think about holistic practice. So biopsychosocial. What are the biological processes that are affecting the disease states? How does this affect the child or the, the family's psychology? And how does the social determinants of the health affect both biology and psychology? So think biopsychosocial when approaching any child who presents to the emergency department. Four, utilize the multidisciplinary team. In order to provide the best biopsychosocial holistic care, you need to enlist the help of other people within your department, particularly the nurses. You'll need them. They'll be your, your best teachers when you start off in pediatric emergency medicine. You need to utilize them the best you can with procedures. We are also quite lucky in our pediatric emergency department to have other disciplines, such as the child family health nurse, the physiotherapist, the nutritionist. Utilize them to take care of your child and utilize them to teach you about children as well. Commandment five, develop and build your clinical skills early. So this is the classical sort of teaching 80%, 80 to 90% of your diagnosis is made by a good history, physical examination, and bedside test. It's all about using all the data you can from your clinical assessment from the parents, from your multidisciplinary team to build a good clinical synthesis of what's going on. So build it early. Commandment six, check and double check your drug doses. So a practical one. I always double check, triple check sometimes my drug doses in children. Small errors in calculation can lead to large mistakes. Commandment seven, safety netting and follow-up are key to good care. So safety netting. Spending that three to five minutes at the end of your consultation by empowering parents to better care for their child at home for whatever illness that they presented with, to know when to seek help if the child deteriorates are really important. We don't have a crystal ball in front of us. So things change and disease processes change and children might become better rapidly or deteriorate rapidly. Parents need to know when to bring their child back to the emergency department. Good GP follow-up care is also important. Commandment eight, um, the long road to pediatric emergency medicine. It is long, arduous and challenging, but rewarding. It is not a race, but it is a marathon. So create and develop 
a strong support network early within your colleagues, but also think about your family and your social groups. Uh, they will be your safety nets for you when things get tough and challenging. Nine, maintain and develop your interests and passions. I would say when you finish your training, it's your interests and passions which will really enrich in your practice. Whether you play guitar, you sing, you do exercise, make sure you keep these passions alive. They will enrich how you practice medicine. For example, I love to dance. I learned salsa when I was doing my training. And through salsa, I found my wife. So just one example of how that can sort of sustain you throughout your career. 10, it is a long and hard road. You will come with difficulties, particularly when you have sick kids. First, remember why you chose pediatric emergency medicine or why you chose your specialty in the first place. What was the call? What was the vocation? That will sustain you as well in the long run. So that's my 10 commandments for you guys. If you like some of this content, you can visit my Instagram page. It's Dr. Carlito Pem Ed. Uh, you can find me there. For those of you guys who haven't met Dr. Carl Pobre, salsa dancing is entirely keeping with his dreamy Instagram celebrity. <laughs> <laughs> That brings us to the end of the first part of the series on pediatrics. If you have any questions or comments or any feedback, please email us at club at gmail.com. Stay tuned for parts two and three.